invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And we're going to read the first eight verses of John 15. This is the holy and inspired word of God. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn also in the Catechism to Lord's Day 25, rather 24. And you'll find this in the back of the hymnal on page 882. Last week we had considered our righteousness before God that could only be by faith alone, trusting in Jesus Christ, being united to him and in him receiving a righteousness that is acceptable before God. Now in this Lord's Day, we're going to take up the role of good works in the Christian life? How do we, on the one hand, confess that it's by faith alone that we are righteous and yet not live licentious, sinful lives that grace may abound, as some may object? What what is the role of good works in the Christian's life? This will be taken up later in the third part of the catechism as well, but here it's specifically thinking about our good works in relationship to our righteous standing Uh, before God, which is by faith alone. So there's three questions there. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with uh, the answers. So question 62, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude so far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you have good works? Does the Christian have good works? I think at times we want to shy away from the claim that any of us have any good works. But the catechism, reflecting the truths of Scripture, assumes that as a Christian you do possess 
good works, right? It's implied in the very first question that we read, question 62. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, right? The assumption here is that we have good works, and, but the question is, why can't they be our righteousness before God? As a Christian, we ought to have our lives filled with good works. Now, yes, as question 62 reminds us, these good works cannot be our righteousness before God. That's not the purpose that they serve. Their ultimate purpose that they serve is, as Jesus tells us in John 8, that your Father might be glorified, right? You produce good works, not that you might be righteous, but that your Father in heaven might be glorified. And so our good works that we possess are not our righteousness, and we ought never to trust in them as if they make us righteous before God. Furthermore, our righteousness can't, rather our good works can't merit anything before God as well, right? That's what question 63 tells us, right? Can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And the catechism reflecting the truths of scripture tells us that our good works don't merit anything before God as if they themselves are deserving of a reward, but even God in his grace rewards our weak efforts, even our good works. And then finally, the question regarding our good works is that in question 64, doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? And this is what I want to focus on in the sermon today from John 15. This question, its answer which says, it is impossible, and note that word, it is impossible For those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude, right? So that's put in the negative. It's impossible not to produce fruits of gratitude or it's necessary, it's inevitable for those engrafted into Christ Jesus to produce fruits of gratitude. And that's what I want to focus on uh, today. Not our good works as those which make us righteous before God. They don't. Only faith in Christ does that. Not our good works as if they merit anything before God, because they don't. They're only rewarded by his grace, all to his glory. But I want to focus on the good works that must be, that inevitably are produced as we are engrafted into Jesus Christ by true faith. And that language, of course, comes um, especially from John 15, which we're going to focus on under two points. Uh, there is so much to say here um, in, these, um, in this discourse of Jesus, uh, his upper room discourse, his final words that he leaves with his apostles before he goes to the cross, dies, is buried, is raised, and ascends into heaven. Um, but as we focus on just a few things in this chapter, we'll do so under these two points. First, Jesus, the true vine, and secondly, his disciples, fruitful branches. Jesus, the true vine. His disciples, the true, uh, rather fruitful branches. And so the first thing we need to recognize, right, if we think about our Christian lives, right, as you think about growing in Christ and talking with many of you, counseling some of you, um, walking through the Christian life together, I know it is your desire to grow in the Christian life, right? Nobody here desires to be stagnant. Nobody here desires to fall back into the pattern of sin in which God rescued them from. And so all of you look forward to growing in Christ. And first and foremost, right, how do I do that? 
First and foremost, it's by recognizing who Jesus Christ is. It's by setting our eyes upon who Christ is. I think so often the approach to self-help today and the approach to bettering ourselves today is to focus on yourself, right? That's what you hear all around us, right? Focus on yourself, me time, um, forgive yourself, right? It's all about self, right? And if I just look to myself, well, then I could better my life. But the proper approach, the Christian approach to growing in godliness, to maturing in Christ is by first and foremost looking to Jesus Christ and asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? And what is Jesus Christ for me? And one of the many I am sayings, right, Jesus throughout John's gospel reminds us and teaches us who he is, right? He is the true light who comes into the world. He is the bread that the Father sends from heaven to nourish his people. He is the good shepherd who leads you, laying down his life for you. And here, what we're going to focus on is that Jesus tells us that he is the true vine. An interesting simile that Jesus is drawing here for us. One that we're very aware of in nature, right? We can look around us, you see a vine, and you see branches connected to it. And you know that if a branch is disconnected from the vine, the branch withers away and it dies and it doesn't bear any fruit. But a branch that is connected to the vine bears much fruit. A vine, then, is something of, of life-giving. It has a source of life in itself that it passes on and shares with that which is connected to it. And so Jesus here says to look around you, notice nature around you as it testifies to the glory of God, and see that I am the true vine. But then the question is, why does Jesus use the adjective true? Are there false vines? Are there, is there counterfeit vines? Why does Jesus speak about the true vine? What is he contrasting himself with? If he's true, what's false or what's wrong or what's counterfeit? Well, throughout John's gospel, this is a longer point, but we won't uh, spend all the time on this. John uses this adjective true to describe what Jesus brings from heaven in comparison to what came before, right? What came before all pointed to Jesus, right? It all looked to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, now that I have come, and everything that's, that um, in the past has pointed to me, now fades away, and I am the true thing. So, for example, if you go back with me to John chapter 1, Jesus says this in verse 14, or rather, John reflecting on Jesus' work, says this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So here's our first instance of Jesus being full of grace and truth. He goes on to say in verse 17, if you skip down a couple verses, he draws this comparison. He says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, you might ask the question, well then, if grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, would we then say falsehoods came through Moses? Well, no. What came through Moses was good, but it looked forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so when John speaks of Jesus as true and full of grace and truth, he's saying that Jesus, if we could just summarize it, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before. 
all the types and shadows, everything that looked forward into the, into the future, Jesus is the true fulfillment of it. And so Jesus here says to us in John 15, I am the true vine. You see, Israel in the Old Testament was referred to as God's vineyard and as God's vine. Think of Isaiah chapter 5 where God reminds Israel that like a vineyard, God planted her and God nourished her and God cared for her like a, like a good gardener. And he provided everything she needed that she might bear much fruit. But rather than finding Israel bearing fruit, God comes to her and she has nothing to show for it. She has no fruit. Later, in Ezekiel chapter 15, Ezekiel is given this parable where, again, Israel is compared to a vine, a vine that has not borne any fruit. And therefore, this vine is taken and thrown into the fire. It has no other use to uh, anyone than to be used as kindle, be used as fire to at least heat something up. And so Israel throughout the Old Testament was referred to as the vine, as God's vine that he cared for, that he nourished, that he um, gardened in a sense. And yet that vine produced no fruit and was ultimately cast into the fires of judgment and of exile. But Jesus comes, right, in the midst of that people, declaring himself to be the true vine. Jesus comes declaring himself to be the true vine. That which God will um, care for, right? He says, my father is the vine dresser. And the one in whom then the fruit that the father is looking for will be born, will be produced. Jesus is the one who comes as the true vine. It's a statement of the, regarding who he is in relation to his people. That those then connected to him, those united to him by faith, will produce much fruit. That's what Jesus goes on to say um, in uh, this chapter here. Jesus, by declaring himself the true vine, means that he is the one in whom God's people will now produce the fruits that God has been looking for that Israel failed to produce long ago. Jesus is the one in whom God's purposes then uh, will be fulfilled. Jesus is the true vine. And it's so important for us to recognize him as such because, again, we can fall into this pattern in the Christian life, forgetting who Jesus is and finding our lives fruitless, finding our lives not producing the fruits that we may, ought, we may desire to produce for the glory of God. But when we are reminded that Jesus is the true vine and I am engrafted into him, then we can say with the catechism, it is impossible for those engrafted into him not to produce fruits of gratitude. If Jesus is the true vine, if Jesus is the true vine, then it, then it is inevitable that if I am united to him, my life will produce the fruits of gratitude. And this leads us then to our second point, right? Jesus, the true vine, and secondly, his disciples' fruitful branches. Fruitful bra branches. And Jesus draws this out um, in these, uh, the words that, that follow here. 
In verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What does Jesus mean that if you are united to him, that you are already clean? One commentator had put it this way. It does not mean that they have already attained a certain degree of spiritual or moral perfection. It's not that you are cleansed from all sin and perfect before God, but that Jesus has so deeply bound you to himself by his word that in virtue of that fellowship, you are able and ready to do his word and to bear much fruit. It doesn't mean that if you are united to Jesus Christ, you are sinless and perfect. It means that you are so deeply engrafted into him, your life so deeply connected to his, like a branch to a vine, that in virtue of that union, in virtue of that fellowship with Christ, you are able and ready to do his word and to bear much fruit. Jesus then calls you as those unites him to abide in him. Seven times Jesus in these few verses here gives that call, abide in me, abide in me. But he also says to abide in his word. To abide in him is to abide in his word and to have his word abiding in you. See, this ought to be the sort of presupposition in our thinking when we come to God's word. I'm bound to Jesus Christ. I've been engrafted in to Jesus Christ. And I come to his word that I may find fellowship with him, commune with him, that I may know him more deeply, I may hear him speak to me, right? I, I come to sit under the preaching of the word because it is the word of Christ to hear him speak to me. You see, when we don't have this presupposition, right, we just come to God's word as a, a thing which we might learn, a thing that we might receive some truth from. But when we recognize that I am united to Christ and I'm called to abide in him, then I come to his word to rest in him. I come to his word to find fellowship with him. I come to his word to meet with him, to hear from him, to know him more deeply. This is what it means to abide in Christ. That's why Jesus moves back and forth between abide in me, abide in my word. I abide in you. My word abides in you, right? It is God's word that we ought to recognize as powerful and effective. I think of the word of a powerful king or a powerful ruler, right? Behind his words, right, his words aren't visible, they're not seen, but his words affect things, right? He says, get this and this is gotten, right? Or, or do this and this is done, right? Words carry meaning. They carry, depending on the person speaking them, can carry certain power behind them. And so too, when we think of of God's word, it's not just letters on a page. It's a word that is spoken, living, and active. A word breathed by God and being breathed by God to us as we read this word. And And therefore, this word has the power to change us, to transform us, to cause fruit to be born in our lives. 
And it's when we have this perspective that we then come to God's word with yearning and longing, right? For this word to change us as we study it, as we read it, as we meditate upon it, as we memorize it. We're going to see later in the 1130 service as we look back uh, to the life of Daniel. We find Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 as we're going to see reading the prophet Jeremiah, you know, and Daniel, as I'm going to say later, appears often as a very mysterious figure, right? How is he somebody so seemingly powerful for God, right? One who can stand before kings uh, without flinching, declaring the truths of God. You know, what's the secrets to Daniel's life? Well, Bible study and prayer. (laughs) He's reading Jeremiah to open up, and then he prays before God to begin uh, putting God's work in motion as God uses his prayer for those purposes. But again, Daniel recognized the power of God's word and we ought to recognize it as well. And when we think about God's word within that analogy that Jesus is drawing here, right? I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. And you say, how do I do that? By coming to his word. And Jesus points us to his word because it is powerful, because it can transform and change, because it can train us in godliness. It can correct us and reprove us, right? How does God prune us as his people? Well, through, at times, difficulties, through trials, right? God sends upon us to prune us, but also as his word has that pruning effect to remind us and show us where we need things cut off from us, that we might bear more fruit, right? This is all what Jesus is developing for us here. So as you come before God's word, even this week, remind yourself. Remind yourself that Jesus is the true vine. Remind yourself that you've been engrafted into him. Remind yourself of his call then to abide in him and in his word. And then read his word to meet with him. Read his word to see him here, to see his glory, to see his power, to see his beauty, to see his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace. Again, if we could just contrast this with another um, uh, sort of presupposition, how we come to God's word, right? The modern approach is so me-focused, right? I come to God's word, okay, what does this immediately tell me to do? What does this immediately say about me? I read the Old Testament, okay, where am I in this story? That's the wrong approach. Jesus' words here are telling us that, his, that through his word we abide in him. And therefore, when we come to his word, the first thing we ought to look for, the first thing we ought to desire to see is Jesus. His love for me, his grace towards me, his justice, his righteousness at work in saving his people, subduing his enemies. The implications of of this chapter for how we read the Bible are so significant. And and we can go on and continue, but we need to, um, to come to a conclusion here. As we've thought about Jesus, the true vine us, his disciples, as fruitful branches. And I want to just draw out in conclusion four uh, points of further application. Right? We've been thinking about what this, how this ought to change us as we abide in Christ and his word. And the first, uh, first, of, the, first of four is that we ought to prioritize the glory of God the Father. We ought to prioritize in our lives the glory, right? 
Jesus gives the reason for all of this in verse 8. He says, by this, right, by bearing much fruit, as he is the true vine, and we're united to him, and as united to him, we're inevitably producing fruits of gratitude, right? Jesus is saying, by this, my Father is glorified. As we said in the beginning, right, we pursue good works to bear much fruit, not to make a name for ourselves, not that people might think we're great people, but rather that the, our Father in heaven would be glorified because we know that in ourselves we can do nothing, right? Jesus tells us that very directly here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The fruit that you bear in your life is because of what I give you and what strength I provide you with. And therefore, um, all of these things are to the glory of your Father. We're to prioritize the glory of our Father in heaven. Second, we are to prize the word of Christ above all else. We are to prize, prize the word of Christ. And this gets at what we've talked about before, right? The power to change your life is found in Christ, abiding in him. And therefore, when we come to his word, we meet with him to find our lives changed. Paul tells us that we are changed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the glory of Christ. As we see him, it transforms us and changes us. Think of when Moses ascended the mountain of God, right? As he came back down, his face literally shone so brightly that it was veiled. Well, so too, when we look upon the glory of Christ, our lives are changed. At the in, in, on the inside, we're not going to visibly begin shining, um, but rather, we're going to be producing um, works and good works and good fruit to the glory of God. Thirdly, right, so we're to prioritize the glory of God. We're to prize the word of Christ. And thirdly, we're to pursue usefulness. It's interesting that Jesus speaks of, in these terms, of being useful and being useless, Right? And it kind of almost sounds offensive. Well, you can't say somebody's useless. Well, in Jesus' words here, right, there are those who produce much fruit and they're useful as they bring glory to God and those who don't produce any fruit and they're, in God's eyes, useless in, this, in that respect. And therefore, we ought to pursue usefulness as those who abide in Jesus Christ and be reminded that there is such thing as being useless for the purpose of the Father as the vine dresser, Right? If somebody cares for a garden, the use of that garden is that it would produce much fruit. And if it doesn't produce it, well, then it's useless to the vine dresser. And so, too, the Father prunes, the Father gives Christ as the true vine that we might be uh, useful uh, to the Savior. And so as we think about our lives as engrafted into Jesus Christ, let us prioritize the glory of God. Let us pursue usefulness as those who abide in Christ. And let us prize the word of Christ as we abide in him. And his word abides in us, changing us, transforming us, that we might bring glory to our Father in heaven. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the vine dresser, that Christ is the true vine. Thank you that we have by faith been engrafted into him so that it is impossible for us not to produce the fruits of, of gratitude 
and the fruits of righteousness. Father, may our lives bear much fruit as we abide in Christ and his word abides in us. And may we come to your word longing, desiring by faith to meet with Christ, to see him, his glory, his gospel. And that as we behold his glory, you would change us from one degree of glory to the next as we are made more and more into his image, into the one whose life, whose life uh, bore fruit uh, for you on this earth, bringing glory to you. And now as his disciples, may we too bear much fruit in bringing glory to your great and awesome name. May we never rest in those works and trust in them as our righteousness before you, but from hearts that desire your glory, may we seek to bear much fruit. And as we are united to Christ, may we bear much fruit. We pray this all in his name. Amen.